You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. The speculative store bypass vulnerability is found in most current chipsets. GPON-based routers are assembled into botnets. Comcast and TeenSafe close vulnerabilities in transmission and storage of customer data. Roaming Mantis banking trojans acquired new functionality. Is Moscow waiting for the World Cup to conclude before going on cyber attack? How about Iran and China? Will DPRK hacking be on the summit agenda? And GDPR is coming Friday to some information near you. From the CyberWire studios at Datatribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Tuesday, May 22, 2018. Another speculative execution flaw similar to Spectre and Meltdown has been discovered by Google's Project Zero. The vulnerability is exploitable by speculative store bypass, which could expose user data across a broad range of devices. Intel is calling it Variant 4 and classifying it as medium risk. Microsoft is even more optimistic, characterizing the risk to users as low, but Variant 4, which has been designated CVE 2018-3639, is being taken seriously. The issue isn't confined to Intel chips. It affects both Intel and AMD x86 chipsets, Power 8, Power 9, System Z, and some ARM processors as well. Exploitation of the side-channel vulnerability could allow unauthorized read access to memory on afflicted systems. Speculative execution is an optimization technique chip designers use to speed tasks by performing some of them before, strictly speaking, they're needed. It uses a history of branch executions to predict tasks before they've been called for. This makes more efficient use of processing resources employing them as they're available to accomplish tasks that will probably be wanted. The disclosure has been coordinated among Intel, AMD, ARM, IBM, Microsoft, and other tech firms. Some vendors have already issued mitigations. Those who face a more challenging patching problem, including Intel, intend to make fixes available within the next few weeks. Analysts tell users to expect some performance decline after applying patches, Intel says tests of the coming fixes have shown a 2 to 8% decline in performance. Security firm Bombgar recently released their Privilege Access Threat Report for 2018, which shines a light on what are often poorly managed account privilege practices. Sam Elliott is Director of Security Product Management at Bombgar, and he joins us to share some of their findings. The thing that's really core to us when it comes to managing privilege access are those users that uh, actually have the credentials and need them to do their jobs. And those users, we tend to put in two different categories, insiders 
or third parties. So insiders being the people that are employed by you and are part of your organization. Uh, third parties would be those folks who come in to help your organization with technology challenges. So think um, Microsoft or Cisco or somebody coming in from the Microsoft or Cisco office virtually to work on the systems where they have applications. So those are the service providers or uh, third-party vendors. We've done this for a few years now, and it's interesting to watch over time, to watch the, uh, the how the trends are changing, uh, either for the better or, in some cases, as we discovered in this report, some trends that were kind of surprising heading the wrong way. Um, I think overall, the research indicates that the majority of the organizations continue to lack just the general oversight, awareness, uh, when it comes to effectively managing privilege access. And so there's a lot of data in the report that suggests organizations are aware of the challenge, but they're still playing catch up, I would say, to how do we actually manage this in a meaningful way so we can prevent the types of breaches that we're seeing ending up in the news and, uh, you know, having everybody have to go and uh, get new credit cards or get credit monitoring or, or something of that sort. What do you think is guiding those trends? Well, I think there is this kind of matter of trust that's happening. I mean, despite knowing that the cyber attacks are, we're, you know, we're in a, in a the modern era where it's increasingly likely that you, if you work in a, a large organization and you're part of the IT team, that you're going to have to be defending your organization against cyber breaches. And I think that we're really seeing that so many of the breaches that happen stem from a compromised credential or maybe an unsecured uh, remote access connection out to the internet that would make it easy for a threat actor to uh, connect to and then move into the, to an organization's internal and hopefully more well-protected part of their organization. With the velocity of these attacks happening and being more visible, that organizations are really starting to take notice, hey, we've been doing all this very clever stuff out on the perimeter of our organization's d- defense in depth security posture. But we've missed uh, what you might think of as the fundamentals when it comes to uh, good credential hygiene and good access hygiene. So things like making sure that I'm not sharing my domain admin credentials with more than one person. So uh, I make so I don't make it hard for me to have good accountability or good attestation when it comes to uh, who did what, when, with which type of credential uh, on which system. And so I think really that the awareness is building uh, and people are, are, are saying, hey, you know, you can do a lot of damage with an elevated credential or with an, un, uh, an element of unsecured access. So we've got to start putting more of our focus there, kind of an internal focus. You may have heard the term assume they're already in. What would I do in my internal defense and depth posture if I was thinking that way? And so there's just a bit of a mind shift. Firewalls are absolutely required, but they're not good enough as the only means of protection these days. That's Sam Elliott from Bomgar. You can check out their complete privileged access threat report for 2018. That's on their website. Vulnerable gigabit passive optical network, that's GPON-based home routers, are being herded into botnets. Much of the activity, which is being tracked by security firm Trend Micro, is centered on Mexico. Trend Micro calls the scanning Mirai-like, but this isn't Mirai. The story is still developing. We'll see what comes of it. Two problems have appeared on the consumer data security front. 
Comcast is reported to have rendered customers' Wi-Fi passwords relatively easy to compromise. The issue was found in the cable giant's Xfinity activation site. The problem is, as the researchers who found it explained to ZDNet, that it's possible for someone to activate an account that's already active. The information needed to do so is minimal, and it's not verified by text or email. And finally, Comcast was sending the wireless name and password in plain text. Comcast took the service down promptly once it was alerted to the problem. The TeenSafe tracking app that lets parents keep tabs on what their kid is doing online has apparently left thousands of customer accounts exposed through an inadvertently misconfigured AWS bucket. TeenSafe has secured the database and is in the process of notifying affected customers and of investigating whether any of the data may have been stolen. Researchers at Kaspersky Labs are describing the evolution of the mostly mobile Trojan Roaming Mantis. It began as a banking Trojan, but now it's evolved. Roaming Mantis has acquired both phishing and cryptojacking functionality. It's fluent in a remarkable range of languages. Arabic, Armenian, Bulgarian, Bengali, Chinese, both traditional and simplified, Czech, English, Georgian, German, Hebrew, Hindi, Indonesian, Italian, Japanese, Korean, Malay, Polish, Portuguese, Russian, Serbo-Croatian, Spanish, Tagalog, Thai, Turkish, Ukrainian, and Vietnamese. Did we mention English? English. The still upcoming U.S.-North Korean summit may have another item on the agenda in addition to North Korean nuclear weapons. Advisors to President Trump are considering urging that discussions of cyber operations be placed on the table as well. The DPRK has remained active in cybercrime. Recent estimates suggest that some $650 million have been stolen since Kim Jong-un's ascension to power in 2011. U.S. officials are concerned about securing their own communications channels and the channels they intend to use in working with their South Korean allies. It's widely believed that those communications will receive considerable hostile attention from Pyongyang's espionage services prior to and during the summit. Three other nation-state big dogs aren't barking right now, but there's speculation that they may do so soon. Speculation in the UK holds that Russia's restraint from attacking British infrastructure is temporary. The World Cup is hosted in Russia this year, and once it's over, analysts expect the bears to begin dancing and prancing through Blighty again. The BBC doesn't put it quite like that, but such is the gist of what people are thinking. Cozy and fancy, we hardly knew ye. That was okay. Iran's widely anticipated reprisals against the U.S. for withdrawing from the nuclear deal are also yet to materialize. In Tehran's case, however, the night is still young. And some ask what might have become of the large trove of data stolen in the OPM breach, presumably now in the hands of Chinese intelligence. In any case, the OPM stuff hasn't made much of an appearance in the black market, and as Holmes would tell Watson, the significant thing is that the dog didn't bark, in this case on the dark web. Maybe this whole GDPR thing has the spooks spooked in the aquarium and on Tongyang Road, hmm? After all, messing with Langley is one thing, but you really don't want to be on the bad side of the boys from Brussels. Have you heard about those fines for mishandling personal data? Murder. Oh, by the way, GDPR goes into full effect this Friday. Have you heard? We thought so. 
Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging and time-consuming. Enter Vanta. Vanta gives you one place to centralize and scale your security program, quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for ISO 27001, SOC 2, and more. You can leverage Vanta's market-leading trust management platform to unify risk management and secure the trust of your customers. Plus, use Vanta AI to save time when completing security questionnaires. CyberWire daily listeners can get $1,000 off by going to vanta.com slash cyber. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash cyber. In the dynamic world of enterprise security, identity architects and IT leaders face a major challenge. Growth by repeated acquisitions multiplies the complexity of everything. Multiple IDPs, MFA providers, policy engines that all need to coexist. This can lead to fragmented user identities and policies that create security vulnerabilities and add access friction. Strata Identity solves this. Now you can decommission unneeded IDPs and consolidate the ones you'd like to keep without rewriting apps or disrupting users, engineers, and app owners. Plus, Strata's modular architecture makes it easy to integrate with any identity provider without manual maintenance and coding. Join the ranks of cybersecurity leaders using identity orchestration, Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your top identity security priorities, and receive a pair of complimentary AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Step into a new era of identity management at strata.io slash cyberwire. And joining me once again is Emily Wilson. She's the Director of Analysis at Terbium Labs. Emily, welcome back. Um, we want to talk about the notion of fear versus empowerment. There's a lot to unpack there. So uh, where do we get started? Sure. So I was at a, a conference a couple of weeks ago, the No Identity, K-N-O-W for your listeners, the <laughs> No Identity Conference hosted by One World Identity. And one of the panelists there kind of pushed back against the idea that we need uh, we need more communication and security. We need to be putting out more content uh, in order to educate not only our um, our users, but also consumers as a whole. He said, you know, we have enough of this information out there already. The problem is that we're not focused on empowering users. We're educating them, maybe, but we're kind of leaving them in a lurch here. And that really resonated with me. And think anyone who's heard me talk for more than two minutes has heard me say this before, but I think there's a real problem in security of relying on fear and selling fear. It's easy. It's convenient. It's quick. It's something that we can all get behind. It creates a visceral reaction in people, but that's not helpful. And in fact, it's detrimental. From my perspective, and this is something that I focus on a lot, we focus on a lot at Terbium, you don't need to be afraid of the threats facing you in security. You should be concerned. There's a lot to be concerned about, but you do not need to be afraid. And I think that if we actually want to be having conversations about productive advancements in security, we should be talking about reasonable concern and not fear. 
And it strikes me that uh, just from a practical point of view, um, if my employees are afraid to report something that they may have done wrong because they're going to get their wrist slapped or lose their job or whatever, that, that contributes to insecurity. Absolutely. And I think we can see this inside of companies. I think we can see this out of leadership. I think we can see it in the industry. Um, and certainly, I think for uh, for consumers outside of the industry, you know, my parents, your parents, you know, people are afraid. And so what do they do? If you're afraid, you feel helpless and uncertain. You uh, you want to push back against that. You don't want to feel afraid. No one likes that. And so you ignore it or you say, I can't do something about it. It really strips someone of their agency. And you're right. In a corporate organization, you really don't want someone who is so afraid that they decide to ignore it. Oh, I'm afraid I clicked on a phishing email, but I just won't say anything because then something something bad can't happen if I don't bring it up. Or I don't understand what's going on here. What are these threat actors? Are they coming after me and my data? What does it mean if I have a data breach? I'm afraid I'm not going to do anything about it. That's pointless. And frankly, it's a foolish way to market security. It also uh, hits me that from an IT point of view, if I'm afraid of my users doing bad things and I lock their machines down so much that uh, it's hard for them to get their work done, they are, being clever humans, going to find workarounds. Absolutely. And it's interesting you bring that up. That was something uh, one of the other panelists mentioned at the conference that I thought was useful was that, you know, your users are going to consistently find workarounds for whatever you throw at them. And so you shouldn't be, you know, running around looking for stopgap solutions and how do I uh, move them away from this thing? I don't want them to think about it. I want them to think it's this big, bad, scary thing so they don't go touch it. Or if I make it complex enough, they won't mess with it. They'll just leave it alone. That's not going to work. Yeah, it seems like it's almost a, a hierarchical thing where rather than lording over people, you need to collaborate with them. I think collaboration and I think just honest communication, which is very easy to say and very difficult to do. Mm. Um, I think being able to say, this is something we're concerned about and we're working on it. And here's how you can help. Here's what you can look for. Because then even if people you know, don't recognize it when they see it, I'm thinking about phishing emails, for example, here, you have at least treated them like reasonable, responsible adult humans who are capable of, uh, of making decisions and capable of recognizing issues if you educate them about them. Yeah, and then they'll be invested in the solution. They'll, uh, they'll want to help. Absolutely. All right, Emily Wilson, thanks for joining us. And that's the CyberWire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for CyberWire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Ivan, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. <laughs>